0: The message for today is going to be on 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 25, but we're actually going to begin our reading at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you know him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you Through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Right, oh, well, when I used to be in a particular denominational church at a state level synod meeting at about the same time as what they were trying to cut costs, and so they'd cut spending on it on their youth and children's ministry, of all things, they decided to employ a media liaison person. And as I read the position description, I realized that what they were wanting to employ was a spin doctor for the church. Um, so their role was going to be about writing good news stories about things that were happening in the church and, and putting publishing that in, in the general media. Um, but also keeping an eye on the on the media reports that were out and about in the community at the time. And if there was any bad news stories about the church, they had to pick up on those straight away so that so that they could then address those in the media and whatnot. So it was all about PR, public relations, and, and getting their image right. And for a lot of big churches today, PR is a big part of what they do. But Today, we're going to be talking about a different sort of PR, and this is the sort of PR that should be in, a, in churches today. I'm talking about privilege and responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. So the topic for last week, and, and we covered some of this same, same reading this time, um, The topic for last week was about how we live in a privileged time indeed. The prophets foretold the coming of the Messiah and they longed to see the day in which we now live. We live in the time following the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what a privilege this is. The Spirit of Christ through the prophets of old had foretold his coming they'd foretold his sufferings and they'd foretold his glories and those glories are plural, right? So it's the, the combined glory of, of when Jesus was raised from the dead, but it's also the glories they're also predicting of when Jesus returns again. And the prophets of old foretold all this, but they each only had a tiny little piece of the puzzle and they didn't understand what it meant. And even the angels were watching intently to see what was going to happen. But now we are living in the time after Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're living in the time where by his Holy Spirit, the word of God is being preached today. And we're living in the time where the prophecies about Christ have been explained to us in the scriptures. And so we're not living in the dark anymore. We know why Jesus came. We know why Jesus suffered. We know why Jesus died for us. It was for the redemption of our sins. And, and we know that he's returning again to judge the living and the dead. And we know that those who are truly his will share with him in his glory. And what a tremendous privilege we have to be living in this time when we know this. And so the things that the prophets of old long to see, the things that the angels long to see as well, we're living it. And we're caught up in this wonderful period where we know God's eternal plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, his son. That's a privilege. All right, so that's a little recap on last week. And I gave you the heads up last week that, about what today's message was going to be about. You see, it doesn't end with the privilege. The privilege isn't the be-all and end-all. Because the very next word that we came to after that, and it was actually the very first word of the verses that we're going to be studying today, is the word therefore. And that word therefore sets the tone for the rest of this letter. With that word therefore, the Apostle Peter steers this letter to a direction that it's going to hold Except for in a couple of little minor points, right through until the end. And it's going to focus on how we, as disciples of Jesus, how we, as the privileged children of God, should live in the light of the privilege that we've received. So there's a Greek word that Peter uses here, and it's translated in two different ways in today's reading it's anastrophe, which means conduct. Um, Sorry, it's translated as conduct in verse 15. And in verse 8, it's translated as ways or way of life. Um, But it's exactly the same word used in both cases. And in the whole of the New Testament, that word gets used a total of 13 times. Not that many for, for the number of words that's in the New Testament. Six of those 13 times are in this letter that Peter wrote. Two of those 13 times are in the second letter that Peter wrote. So that's eight out of the 13 belong to Peter, which leaves five in the rest of the New Testament. All right, so, so Peter, this apostle whom Jesus chose, so it seems that he chose Peter as his lead man, doesn't he? He's always pretty prominent in the Gospels. And this Peter has a great concern for the way in which disciples of Jesus conduct their life he has a great concern for the for the way of life that we live now one of the great tragedies of the christian church is the way that we tend to overreact to wrong teaching And the way we tend to overreact to wrong theology by swinging the pendulum too far the other way, right? So let's think of a pendulum and the pendulum's getting pulled over this way and there's wrong teaching happening. Okay, oh golly, I've got to preach against that. So I pull the pendulum right over the other way and preaching so hard against this that, that we're actually in danger of creating our own wrong teaching by pulling it too far the other way. In the early 1500s, Pope Leo X set about raising enormous sums of money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Um, and he wanted to build this to the level of extravagance that he had his heart set on. Now, how were you to fund such an enormous venture? Well, no, he didn't run a chook raffle. And no, he didn't sell booze at the local church fete. Although he might have done those things too, we don't know. But what he did do, which proved to be an enormous money spinner, was he started to sell these things called indulgences. And so if you weren't really sure that your dearly departed granny was good enough to get to heaven and that she might happen to be caught up in this place that the Roman Catholics called purgatory, then you could buy her out of purgatory and straight into the arms of Jesus by giving the Pope some money to spend on St Peter's Basilica. Um, That was what an indulgence was. So you would pay money so that the Pope could sign a thing to say that they're gonna gonna be safe. Now, I hope you're aware, and I hope you're either laughing in your seat, going, who would believe such a thing? Or be really, hmm, how silly were they? I I hope that's your attitude, and I hope you're not all defensive of of what they're doing, because it's just plain wrong. Are we agreed on that? That's just plain wrong. Right. Now, this well, certainly it wasn't the only factor, but it was one of the major presenting issues that led Martin Luther to nail his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and the Protestant Reformation began. Now, some of you will find this very interesting because you love history. Some of you find it very boring because you go, oh, what use is this? This happened years ago. But I want you to know, this has had an enormous effect on the Christian church and on its teaching right through to this day. It's had good effects and it's had bad effects. So the catch cry of the reformation of the church, and some of you will know this, some of you won't, were scripture over tradition Faith over works, grace over merit, right? So in Latin, they were known as the three sole, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, right? So scripture alone for our source of authority. We, We don't look to tradition as our source of authority. Faith alone, doing good works, that's not a means of salvation. And grace alone, It is the unmerited favour of God by which we are saved. We cannot earn it. We can't buy it. It's by grace. It's already been bought by God. Our redemption and our righteousness is paid for by the blood of Jesus. Right? Now, are we all happy with those slogans? By grace alone, by by scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone? I hope so, because we're a Protestant church, right? Now, but you know the problem with a catchy slogan problem with a catchy slogan is sometimes that slogan it's easier to obey a slogan than scripture sometimes a slogan gets given greater authority than what it's actually pointing to and in this case sometimes the first phrase gets a little bit ignored so that we can give precedence to the second and third phrase and in the protestant church today and don't get me wrong as i said we ourselves are a protestant church um, and because and, and, we don't acknowledge that the Pope in Rome is Christ's vicar on earth and we are very grateful for the Reformation. We believe in scripture over tradition. We believe faith over works. We believe grace over merit. But the problem comes in that some quarters by faith alone and by grace alone have overridden by scripture alone. Over and over and over again, the Scriptures teach us what Peter is teaching us this morning, that with this great privilege that we have to be children of God, with this great privilege that we have to have been saved by grace and saved by faith, with this comes a great responsibility to live as the children of God, to be holy as God is holy. And there are many scriptures, uh, sorry, many preachers who are afraid to give a message like what you're going to get today. Um, You see, there are many other preachers who would brand me as being a heretic and who would brand me as being a false teacher. Because I'm going to dare to say to you today, as James did, that faith without works is dead. And quickly, before anyone gets up and walks out on me, let me say this. And if you still disagree with me afterwards, you can can say cheerio and and wander on out and we won't chase you. But I want you to hear this. I believe that the scriptures are very clear on this. No one is saved by doing good works. Uh, Doing many good things will not save me. Knowing the right people will not save me. Being born in the right family isn't gonna save me. Being in the right denomination isn't gonna save me. We are saved by grace alone and we are saved by faith alone. But the scriptures also very clearly teach that once we are saved as disciples of Jesus, the Lord demands our obedience. How we live matters and it matters greatly. And so strangely, what is a very clear scriptural direction and expectation for God's people has somehow become controversial. And I find that incredibly sad. And in the past, I've been branded as a legalist simply because I teach what the scriptures say on how we, those who have been saved by grace, must now obediently do good, and live holy lives. And that might seem like a little thing for you, but let me tell you, as a preacher and as a Bible teacher, I don't think there's anything more cutting than being labelled as a false teacher or a legalist, simply because we take Scripture more seriously than a slogan. So let's put, today we're going to put Sola Scriptura back at the top of the, the sole, where it began. So Peter says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, it's a strange phrase there. It literally says, therefore, girding up the loins of your minds. Um, Now, that's a strange phrase. Uh, In the ancient Middle East, and actually in some cases in the Middle East today, their clothes were long, loose-fitting garments that would go right down to the ankles. And if you were going to go to war, or if you had to run, or if you had to do some hard work, well, it's not the most practical of clothes to to do it in. It's going to trip you up. And so if you're going to do some hard work, or if they're going to go for a run or whatever, they had to hitch themselves up. Um, into a, a bit of a short skirt sort of thing. Oh, yes, the picture's up there. All right, so hopefully that gives you a bit of an example of what girding up your loins looks like. Um, so you'd have to hitch up your, your um, clothing and fasten it around your waist with your belt and so that it doesn't all trip you up. So that's what girding up your loins means, making yourself ready for work, making yourself ready for action. And our translation today then went on and said, being sober-minded. The Greek actually doesn't have minded there. It just says being sober. Um, It's talking about having a clarity of mind and having good judgment. Um, So let's talk about alcohol for a bit. Some Christians make a really big issue about alcohol. And they don't believe that any Christian should ever drink any alcohol. Now, I just want to say, if that's the rule you want to live by, that's fine. And we won't judge you for it. Um, but it's not a rule that we should expect other people to follow. Um, it's a rule which has been made by men. And then I've seen people actually twist themselves into knots to try and actually show that, you know, Jesus never drank alcohol and, 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 and whatnot. Um, But I want you to know, God didn't ban the drinking of alcohol, except for in a few specific cases. What God forbid, and God has consistently forbidden it, and he continues to forbid it for Christians today, is drunkenness. Well, where do we draw the line at drunkenness? Well, all I can give you today is my advice. Um... For anyone who's wondering, okay, well, what's the limit? When when is enough enough? I'll just tell you what I've chosen for myself. And I've done this ever since I was a teenager. It's to maintain clarity of thought. Because that's what we're being told here. At the point at which your character begins to change, I suspect you probably had too much at the point at which your mind is no longer as sharp as what it is without being affected by alcohol, I'd suspect you've probably had too much. Um, By most people's standards, they would probably say that, Michael, you've never been drunk. Um, One night during an evening where somebody had bought some bottles of wine, I had a few glasses during the evening. And it actually got to the point where somebody asked me a question and this is when I was still young, and I had to think for a little while before I answered it. Now I'm old, I, st- I, I now have to think for a while as well. But it, it, I realised that that question they asked me, I should have just been able to come straight back at them with an answer. And I couldn't. And I realised that that alcohol was affecting my mind, and I'd had too much. And I knew I'm never going to put myself in that position again. I, that's, that's too much, and that's not God-honouring. And for many people in our culture, and let's, be, let's face it, the Australian culture is a big drinking culture, um, particularly with, in youth scenes. Um, binge drinking is an enormous social problem for us. Um, and for many people in our culture, drinking alcohol or, or doing drugs, same, same category, is a way of loosening up so that we can have a good time. And a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, I just need to have a few just to get me in the mood, you know, I wanna be really blunt here. If you've had enough alcohol, or any other drug for that matter, to change your character, or to change your mind, or to change your feelings, you've had too much. You see, we're not to be drunk on on, on alcoholic spirits. It's the Holy Spirit who is supposed to be changing our hearts and our minds. And Peter says, gird up your loins, prepare yourself for action, prepare yourself for work and be sober. Right? So he's saying, keep that absolute clarity of mind. I suspect that most Australian Christians drink way more than what they should. It's the way of the unsaved culture It's the way that we were before we were Christians and it's the way that people carry over um, into their current way of living. And I want to suggest that if there's a possibility that you might be over the limit to drive, you're probably over the limit for a clarity of mind for Jesus. But in the Greek, that phrase being sober-minded, it's not just about being sober. It is also about maintaining good judgment. It's about maintaining a clarity of mind. All right. So what's he talking about here? What he's getting us to focus on, he wants our full ambition. He wants our full focus. He wants us to be so prepared for it and and ready for action and clarity of mind so we can give our full focus to be on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ that's what we should set our hearts on that's what we should set our minds on nothing in life matters more than our final salvation in Christ that's the outcome of our faith one commentary I read puts it like this place your hope totally on the return of Christ and its results. They are to hope totally in their reward at the return of Christ, instead of setting their hope on things that are only temporary or only corrupt. We get distracted by so many things in life, don't we? How often do we let other life choices or other life goals get in the way of serving Christ? A new job, a better house, pursuing excellence in our chosen sport or leisure activities. A new business enterprise that I want to develop. How often do we let what are essentially temporary things, because all things, in pretty much all things around us that we concentrate on are temporary things. They're going to pass away. How much do we focus on these and let us just let them distract us from the main thing, the hope that we have at the return of Christ. And so we find, oh, I don't have time for Bible study. I've gotten so busy at work. Right, oh, there isn't any way that I could possibly fit teaching RI into my schedule. Or, yeah, you know, I don't really have time to connect with non-Christians because any time that I've got left, I, I think I owe it to my family. And we tend to fill our lives up with so much stuff and so many activities which are essentially temporary and passing away that we just don't have time to serve Christ in a fuller way. You know what? When I fill my life up with the same things that non-Christians chase after, you know what, what Peter calls this? Living in Ignorance. He says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Right? We used to chase after those things. People of the world chase after them. It's the natural way. We're wired. We pursue these things. We, we want them. But we don't do that anymore. Because now we know better. Peter's just told us we're living in a privileged time. What is this pri- privileged time about? It's because we now know about the salvation in Christ and that he's returning again to, to it so that we can achieve the outcome of our faith. People of the world are living for today, disciples of Jesus. Yes, we do live in today, but we're not living for today. We're living for the return of Jesus. And so we once used to live in ignorance by living for today, but not any longer. The English Standard Version that we read just now talked about the passions of our former ignorance. I think probably a better translation is the desires of our former ignorance. If my desires are pretty much the same as the desires of a non-Christian, then there's probably something wrong with my relationship with God. By the way, does this help you to understand why it's so important that a Christian should never date or marry a non-Christian? Can you picture this? We have completely different desires and priorities in life. Right, so the whole, re- whole purpose of dating is so that I can come to the conclusion, okay, am I a good match for this person or is this person a good match for me? Well, let's ask a, a very simple question. Is their full hope focused on the return of Christ and the outcome of their faith? Are oh, they're not a Christian. Well, it's probably not. And so how could they possibly be a good life partner for you? Instead, we should find ourselves yoked to someone who's, who also has that same special focus. I'm living for the day when Jesus returns. So, what kind of relationship does God expect us to have with him? Now, sometimes I think we make theology and understanding the Christian relationship with God, really hard to understand when it's really quite simple. Jesus told us to see God as our heavenly father. Our our relationship with God isn't a buddy, buddy, mate sort of a thing. He's our heavenly father and we're his children. And as his children, What's the proper way for us to relate to our father? Obedience. Now, for me as a dad, my expectation for my children, when they were children, they're adults now, so it's different now, but when they were children, my expectation for my children was higher than the expectation that I held for other people's children. But that's okay because the other parents of you The expectation that you had for your children is probably higher than the expectation that you had for my children. Before my children grew into men, my expectation was that they would respect me and honour me and obey me. And their mother, of course. That, That goes without saying. The proper way for us to relate to our Heavenly Father is respect Honour, obedience. In verse 15, he says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in some of your conduct. Is that what Peter said? Some of your conduct? How much of your conduct? Oh, Be holy in all your conduct. Be holy, not just when it suits, but when the temptation is strong. Be holy, not not just when you're surrounded by Christians, but when the peer pressure is at its peak. Be holy, not not just when people will agree with your position that you're taking, but when they're going to hate you because of the moral standard by which you live. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You it used to be an honourable thing to want to grow up to be just like your dad. Do you remember that time? Um, Whereas now it sort of seems to be, oh no, you know, you grow up to go and live your own life. You know, but you've got to be your own person. But it did used to actually be an honourable thing to want to grow up to be just like your dad. All I ever wanted to be was a farmer just like my dad. Uh, unfortunately, now you have to be a multimillionaire to make a start, so I think that's off the cards for me. Uh, we, we visited Jake and Lauren the other day, and, and little Sammy, uh, he goes and picks up something rectangular, I can't remember what it was, and he says, lunch, and he takes it, takes it over to his, to his little scooter, and he lifts the lid, which is the seat on the scooter, and he pops it in there, and he says, ute, so the scooter's the ute, he's just put his lunchbox in his ute, then he goes and gets, gets his hat and gets hat, puts his hat on. And then he goes and gets a pair of sunglasses and puts them on. And then he hops on his ute and he's off to work, just like Dad. It's so cute. Uh, the normal father-child relationship is for the child to want to grow up to be just like his dad. And that's the way we should be with God. We shall be holy, just like our Heavenly Father is holy. How holy is God? Let me tell you what what a fearful thing it is to come in the presence of a holy God. Let me read for you what the prophet Isaiah experienced when he came into the presence of God. Reading from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken from the tongs. From the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, I think we could probably agree Isaiah was probably a pretty godly sort of a bloke, can't we? But when Isaiah found himself in the presence of a holy God, he knew that he was doomed. What do he say? Woe is me! I'm lost. In other words, I'm going to die. And he knew that even his language wouldn't cut it. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't know whether he's then trying to make an excuse for himself or whether he thinks that you know, oh, I, I live among a people of unclean lips or whether he's saying, yeah, that rubs off on me too. I don't know. But he knew that even his language wouldn't cut it. And and even the words that we speak, what comes out of our mouth is an overflow of what's in our heart. And some of us have gotten so used to bad language that we've convinced ourselves that it doesn't really matter so much. Some Christians try to justify the way that they speak and using bad language, oh, you know what? It it makes me more relevant with my workmates if I can talk just like they do. But the word of the Lord this morning is, be holy in all your conduct. Be holy even in the matter of language. Even if the way that you speak is going to make you stick out from the crowd. Be holy in that. But you know, that's just one example that I'm using. It comes in everything, in everything to do with life. Be holy as the Lord is holy. We are to be holy in all our conduct. We are to be holy because our Heavenly Father is holy. So what is Peter saying about how we set our full hope on the return of Christ? It sort of starts with obedience. Our manner of life should be a life of holiness. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see why this holiness is important. We've covered the first today. Uh, because our Heavenly Father is holy, his children should also be holy. And over the next week or two, we're going to be seeing how if we know that God is the righteous judge, then this should fill us with fear. A holy, reverent awe which affects the way that we live our life. And the third point is that the cost of forgiveness, and if nothing else matters, surely this must. The cost of our forgiveness was so high. It's so high, it should never be taken for granted. The cost of our salvation was so significant, it's extraordinary the precious blood of Jesus Christ, no less. Anyway, we've we've pretty much much run out of time today. And I'm actually finding in in this letter that Peter wrote, um, I I usually like to take big chunks of scripture, but I'm finding that in this particular letter, I'm having to just keep cutting it down. Uh, He's saying so much stuff here. I guess that's what happens when you walk with Jesus. For a few years, you, you have so much to share and pass on. Um, So today's message, I'm not sure if it's cut down into halves or thirds yet. We'll see how far we get next week. As we talk about why holiness is so important. But for today, we have been saved by the grace of God. That grace has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what a privilege that is for us. But with this privilege comes a responsibility If we are the children of God, let's strive to live as the children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be called a child of God. What a privilege it is to live in a time following the resurrection of our Lord who died for us. What a wonderful gift of grace you've given us. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful gift of eternal life. A gift that was paid for by the precious blood of your son. A gift that we could never earn. A gift that we could never buy. But Lord, there's been times that we've taken your grace for granted. And we've conformed to the desires of our former ignorance. And our conduct and our manner of life has been in in many ways similar to that of our unbelieving neighbours. God, forgive us. And Lord, I want to thank you for the assurance that you give us. That even though we have sinned in so many ways, even though we have not lived in the way that you, you expect us to. I want to thank you that your forgiveness is not shallow, that you forgive us completely and that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and that you forgive us of all unrighteousness and you make us holy again. Heavenly Father, you are holy And we ask now that you will help us to strive to also be holy. We thank you that you have made us holy through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that by the help of your Holy Spirit, that we will be changed, that we will be renewed, and that we will increasingly demonstrate the holiness of the Father in the conduct of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, as we gird up the loins of our mind and as we sober up with a clarity of mind to set our hope fully on the day that Jesus returns. Lord, we look forward to that day. We long for that day. Help us to live for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.